0: Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging, objective truth. Here's the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton.
1: Thank you, Suzanne. Well, I'm very honored to welcome a very special guest during Derby Week here in Kentucky. He is a Hall of Fame jockey who, at the time of his retirement, was the all-time leader in earnings of nearly 298 million dollars. He rode in over 40,000 races and won over 8,800 of those. He won the Eclipse Award for Outstanding Jockey four times and he is the president of the Kentucky Racetrack Chaplaincy, Pat Day. How are you, Pat?
2: Oh, I'm doing wonderful. Thank you. How about yourself?
1: Very well, sir. I'm going to start with the most colossal understatement of the universe. This is a different year than most, and so the Kentucky Derby was moved from May to September, and our governor is not allowing any fans to attend. But as I was doing a little research on the field for this year's Derby, I learned that this year's Derby favorite, Tis the Law, is the first odds-on favorite since arazi in 1992 and arazi did not win that race in fact finished eighth and uh, a long shot named lily t won that derby and you rode that horse i wonder if you would mind recounting some of your experience of that day
2: oh it was uh, it was a great day and as you just said arazi was an overwhelming favorite he'd been the two-year-old champion from the year before uh, he'd won the breeders cup juvenile here at churchill downs in, in a spectacular fashion Came from well back in the field in the two-year-old race in the fall of his two-year-old season and kicked in the afterburners, leaving a half-mile pole, ran past the field, come to the top of the stretch and just widened on the field. Uh, I was in the race that day. He went by me about the half-mile pole and I just watched him get smaller as he ran away from me. Uh, in the derby, of course, he came in as a heavy favorite. Uh, I was riding Little E.T. for my dear friend, Lynn Whiting, the horse trainer, and Mr. Calparti, the owner, and I'd had I'd been riding for Mr. Partee and Mr. Whiting for a number of years, and i was was excited about the opportunity to ride little e t for him that afternoon came into the race in good shape, uh warmed up good and and uh, in the post parade and everything was going well uh anticipated a big race, but uh you know obviously had a ran the way he did as a two year old he was going to be extremely hard to beat so as the as the doors opened, we got into the race, he broke well he was laying in a comfortable position, a little bit of traffic going into the first turn, which is to be expected, but that was of no consequence. The little T. He, he got free of that and then got back in stride. And we were moving nice going up the backside. I felt very comfortable. At that point, Razi was behind me. We were mid-pack. Coming to the half mile pole, uh, all of a sudden, here come a Rossi up on the outside of me. And uh, Patrick bounds away to the, the man that was riding him. Looked like he had an arm full of horse. I thought deja vu, because that's right where he'd gone by me in the in the two-year-old race, and he just kept running. So at that point, when he went by me, I thought, well, I'm I'm running for second money. Probably can't can't beat him the way he's running. And so when he went on past me, I eased out from behind horses and and followed him. And to my surprise, he opened up three or four links and then just stayed there. He didn't just keep widening on me. We'd come on around the turn and about the five sixteens pole. Uh, seeing Patrick kind of move his hands on the horse, which is an indication he's he's asking him uh putting a, putting his foot on the accelerator if you would, and he got no response at that point i hadn't i hadn't asked little e t for anything he was he was well within himself, and uh, so I felt pretty comfortable at that point that I was going to be to There was a couple of other horses casualized with Gary Stevens, they were in front of me, and we come off the turn and when I called on little e t he responded beautifully he went on past him coming in the 8th pole and was going to the lead and clay I, I just remember there was a feeling that started way down the pit of my stomach that is just indescribable uh it just started to build and build and build and and when we went under the the finish line there was, it just exploded i was just so elated i just stood up in the irons and started screaming thank you jesus thank you jesus for uh, allowing me the privilege of experiencing winning that great race as you know i i'd ran second on several occasions previous to that, I thought I knew what it was going to feel like. But um, it, it, winning was so far above and beyond running second uh, that it, it really took me by surprise. The Absolute highlight of my racing career.
1: That is so awesome. The The Derby is special to so many people. You know, as military, I moved all around the, the world, really. And uh, people are like, oh, Kentucky, yeah, you all race horses. So mm-hmm. it's very, very special. I know. And I appreciate you recounting that for us. Who was your favorite horse, if not Lil A.T., but did you have a favorite?
2: Oh, goodness. I would be real hard-pressed to pick one that was a favorite. Uh, the best horse I ever rode was a horse called Easy Goer, who ran second in the Derby, second in the Preakness. He won the Belmont in very handy fashion over Sunday Silence. Uh, second fastest Belmont, only the Secretariat. Uh, he was he was probably the best horse I ever rode. But I would be hard-pressed to say that he was my favorite. I I just loved all of them. And there were some real nondescript horses. They would run for a lesser claiming price, lesser uh, caliber of horse, but would try so hard. They would leave it all in the field, as they said. You just had to appreciate their effort.
1: That's great. You mentioned Secretariat. I, as an outsider, have this perception that if we counted racehorses as athletes, which I think we should, that secretariat, Secretariat was the greatest athlete of the 20th century. Is that fair?
2: In my book, yeah. He was a real freak of nature. Uh, his race in a Belmont was, yeah, horses just don't do that. Uh, he was actually picking up speed the farther they went. Uh, no, he was he was a, a very unique creature. He he was very special.
1: Other than that 92 Derby, did you have a most memorable or favorite race that you rode?
2: Well, there, there's, there's probably three races um, that have been most beneficial to my career. Obviously, the... On July 29th of 1973, I won my first horse race, a horse called For Blunge, last race of the day, muddy racetrack, got up in the very last couple of jumps and and won. I'll always remember him. Uh, Obviously, the starting point is very important. Uh, Then I rode a horse called Dana's Woof Woof in 1982, December 31st. I rode him to victory and secured the national riding title. Uh, And then I rode a horse called Wild Again in the inaugural running of the Breeders' Cup Classic uh, back in 1984. Uh, That was the the very first Breeders' Cup series. I think that victory was probably the most instrumental, influential in my my career. That really, that victory on a nationwide audience, uh, that race of that magnitude, really catapulted my career to the next level. Uh, It was very beneficial. But I've ridden a lot of nice horses over the years and won a lot of great races. Uh, won the Canadian Triple Crown on a, a filly called Dance Smartly was a very nice filly. Uh, Lady Secret, Horse of the Year, favorite trick, undefeated, two-year-old, Horse of the Year, the first time since Secretariat, and the list goes on and on. I've just been, I've been so incredibly blessed in a great sport of horse racing to ride some great horses in some great races.
1: Now, with all of that success, Pat Day, it is remarkable to me, although I understand it at my core, that you say unequivocally, there is something else that has been far more meaningful for you, and that's the work that you've been doing since you dismounted. Would you uh, tell us a little bit about the Kentucky Racetrack Chaplaincy?
2: Absolutely. Well, obviously what, what I'm doing today is not unlike what I've been doing since January 27th of 1984, when I had an encounter with Jesus Christ in a hotel room in Miami, became born again, set free from the bondage of drugs and alcohol, experienced the love of God poured out into my heart and and just made a radical difference, obviously a a major change. Uh, You know, the Bible says when you become born again, you become a new creature. The old things are passed away and behold, all things become new again. I was a new creature in Christ. It was shortly after that that I met the chaplain at the racetrack in Hot Springs, Arkansas at Oakland Park, a fellow named Mike Spencer, who became my spiritual mentor and best friend. He helped me to come to grips with the fact that God had saved me to work within the industry, not to leave it. You know, right after I got saved, I thought maybe I need to go to the seminary and become a minister. I need to do something with this newfound faith and this uh, relationship that I have with Jesus. And so I had shared that. Uh, with Mike. He came up with the novel idea of praying, if you can imagine. He said, let's pray about it. We did, and as I said, uh, through that process, the Lord revealed to me that he had saved me to work within racing, not to leave it, being open to opportunities to, to give him the praise, the honor, and the glory. Well, then, as now, the only vehicle that's actively endeavoring to bring the love of Jesus Christ, the gospel message to the horse racing industry, is the Racetrack Chaplaincy of America. And so I became very involved with them, very supportive of them and their effort at that point and have continued to do that. And then when the Lord led me to retire in 2005, today, our primary focus uh, is to share the gospel. And obviously, I, I thoroughly enjoy uh, my involvement with the ministry at the racetrack, which has been so good to me and my family. But uh, the, the Racetrack Chaplaincy of America was founded 50-some years ago. Uh, by a fellow named Salty Roberts. That's not his real name. His real name was Horace. Uh, he was called Salty because he was a bit of a salty character prior to <laughs> coming to Christ. Uh, after he was a, a an exercise rider in the mornings and worked in the valet parking lot at the racetrack in the afternoons and uh, was caught up in the throes of alcoholism, somebody at some point gave him a religious track uh, he'd taken it home, throwed it up on his dresser, uh, went on about his business. He came in a couple of nights later, drunk, despondent, got his shotgun out and was was fixing to end it. And somehow that track got in his hand. Uh, he read it, got convicted, fell to his knees and wept and, and cried and invited Christ into his life. Shortly after that, he he had a real burden on his heart for the people he was working with. Uh, at that point, there was nobody uh, endeavoring to share the gospel with the people that make up the the, the core of the racing industry. So he shared his vision of uh, uh, somebody bringing the ministry, the, the gospel to the racetrack uh, with a visionary minister out of uh, Florida, uh, Reverend L. Dawson. And Reverend Dawson went with Salty to the racetrack. He's seen the fertile ground. He's seen the possibility. And uh, him and Salty went and spoke to the owner of that racetrack. It was Gulfstream Park in, in Florida. Uh, Mr. Doug Don and Mr. Don said, look, he said, you're welcome to use that old paint shop back there. We'll clean it up and clean it out. And you can use that for your church services. And uh, they they had the first church service on a a racetrack at that point. Salty's vision was not just Gulfstream Park. He envisioned a a chaplain at every racetrack in the world. And he, he spent the remainder of his life endeavoring to get that established. Today, I think there's about 48 Chaplains ministering at racetracks throughout North America. I've done some tr- international travel, helping to establish uh, ministries in, in South America, in, in uh, Argentina, uh, Chile, and Uruguay. I've been to uh, New Zealand. I've been to Korea, meeting with the members of the uh, track management and the leaders of the horsemen's groups, helping, uh, show, sharing with them what we're doing here through the chaplaincy and and soliciting their support to help get that started. Recently, I became the president of the Kentucky Racetrack Chaplaincy. We currently have a chaplain working full-time in Northern Kentucky at Turfway Park and across the river at Belterra. Pavel Yerucci is in Northern Kentucky. Joseph Del Rosario and Jessica Singleton are working here at Churchill Downs. And we oversee the activities of two chaplains over at Ellis Park in Western Kentucky, Jesus Amaya and Ron Crawford. So right now, my job is to provide them with what they need to do the work the Lord has called them to.
1: Now, for those of us not involved with stable side operations on these tracks, about how many people are involved in these ministry opportunities that you offer?
2: There are probably 900 to 1,000 people that work on the backside of Churchill Downs every day. All of the trainers, the, the exercise personnel, the grooms, the hot walkers. Uh, assistant trainers, the blacksmiths, the veterinarians—it's uh, quite a community back there. And I believe there's probably about 350 people that actually live back there. Uh, we have a dormitory, and then there's uh, dorms at the end of each of the barns where uh, individuals live. So it's it's um, it's like a city unto itself.
1: Now I'm going to imagine Pat that the racing community there that you describe is very tight knit, knowing that they're really part of something unique and special but there also might be some loneliness in that what are the main challenges that your race families deal with
2: well loneliness is is a big one you know many of uh, much of our backstretch personnel today are from south america so they they're here barely speak the language predominantly spanish uh, and they're away from family away from their homes and then of course it's they're not at the top of the food chain their their salaries Though good, certainly good compared to from to, to where they're coming from, are not exorbitant to say the least. And then there's a, a lot of downtime. You know, they get up early. They're generally done by 11 o'clock in the morning, and then the rest of the day, for the most part, unless they're they have horses in the races themselves, is pretty much quiet uh, until about four o'clock. And then they go back and they'll they'll feed, give the evening feed, and clean the stalls once again, and and then they're done for the evening. So. There's a lot of downtime, a lot of boredom, a lot of loneliness, uh, which you know, an idle mind is the devil's playground. So, uh, our chaplains are—they walk through the barn areas in the mornings. They, they, we call it a ministry of presence. Uh, they're they're visible. They're walking the barns, are cultivating relationships, uh, being the hands and feet of Jesus. Uh, through the chapel, we we provide emergency food, clothing. It's been a little unusual this year, just because with the COVID, it's been very strict. And so we've, a lot of our, what we would normally do has not been happening, but uh, they recently started having uh, weekly Bible studies, uh, church services on Monday evenings and and uh, different activities. Uh, they have, there's a lot of women working, but they're not able to bring their children on. And so uh, Jessica is having online vacation Bible school programs and, and uh, They're doing a lot of their stuff with new technology through Zoom and different avenues that they're reaching out and and ministering to the women and children and and the uh, community at large.
1: Here in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, horse racing is pretty much the only professional sport we have. And most of us see sports in general at all levels uh, as something that should be unifying and fun. But recently, even sports have been embroiled in a kind of divisiveness how do you think that uh, we can best overcome that?
2: You you, and I know that this it's a spiritual battle, and you can't do spiritual battle with carnal weapons. I believe it's incumbent upon us, those that know and love and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to endeavor to be the, the hands and feet of Jesus, to respond in the way that Jesus would. You remember the, the uh, wristband that came out a number of years ago, WWJD? What would Jesus do? Yes, I think before we, we push that send button, before we, remark, we, we respond to a post on social media, uh, before we say something or act in any way in any given situation, uh, we need to stop, take a deep breath and say, what would Jesus do? And then respond accordingly. Uh, I don't believe that in Jesus' day and time, obviously times were different. But uh, it wasn't that he was without any pushback or any conflict. Uh, how did he handle that? And I, I think the level heads prevail. Uh, I think it's necessary for us to keep a tight rein on our tongue, be careful and cautious what and how we say it. Uh, my prayer every day is that I would be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. I think we all have a tendency to, to become defensive immediately. And we are so polarized right now. That's not the way our country is. We're one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And we need to get back to that. I sense that the enemy, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the book, The Screw Tape Letters. Oh, yes, sir. Yeah, Yeah. Well, I can just envision that old screw tape is sitting on the sidelines with this gleeful grin on his face, rubbing his hands together as we're tearing each other down. Uh, he, he's having a heyday. Uh, but my God is still on the throne and in control. We have the victory in Jesus, and we just need to keep our eyes on him, endeavor to be the hands and feet of Jesus, endeavor to be peacemakers. The Bible speaks about God being light and the devil being darkness. Uh, let's, and light always overpowers darkness. So let's let the light of the Lord shine brightly into the hearts and lives of everybody that is so at odds with one another right now. Well,
1: that's a great message and might be the answer to the next question I had in mind to ask you. But uh, in case there's extra part of this, I'm going to ask more specifically just in terms of how people look up to other people who have achieved great success. And many of us, Pat, look to people like yourself as role models. And so I ask, what is the primary message that you like to share with people who are looking up to you?
2: When people look at me, I want, I want the light of the Lord to shine brightly within me. I want people to be drawn to that light, not to me, not to Pat Day, but to the light of the Lord in me. As they're drawn to the light of the Lord in me, then may I be privileged to introduce them to the light, the light of the world that stepped down into darkness. Let me introduce them to the Lord Jesus Christ and, and share with them the joy that I derive from a personal, intimate, ongoing, and ever-growing relationship. With him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that which is only available through belief on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, You know, the word is very clear. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by him. And elsewhere, Jesus says, if you know the truth and the truth will set you free, set you free from this bondage, set you free from this hatred and anger and dissension uh, and, and give you the freedom to serve him and to serve one another.
1: Well, thank you for that. As we're wrapping up, a lot of folks are interested in predicting winners before horse races. Would you counsel that it's better to base predictions like that on the horse or the rider <laughs> and this is a This is not a trick question because you were a rider, but uh how would you counsel people who like to make well, predictions you
2: know you, you the key ingredient. Uh, somebody asked me one time, what was the key to my success? And I, I told him very simply, it's capital S-T-O-C-K, stock. Uh, you know, you can't drive a Volkswagen in a Cadillac race and expect to win. And uh, so the key ingredient is the horse. And then you got to hope that you get the trip. There is so many so many ways to to not win and only one way to win. Uh, you know in a, in a narrow finish the the rider is probably more pivotal than than you know when the margins four or five lengths i believe in that case the horse is so much the best that uh the rider's participation or or what he brought to the table was minimal when it's a, a nose or a neck or a, a small distance the the rider obviously plays a more valuable part in my opinion but as far as trying to pick for the derby uh, do i pick the horse or do i pick the rider and well, I'm, I'm not a very good handicapper. <laughs>
1: so, <laughs> Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you bail out of that one, but that's a very wise uh, and, and humble uh, answer. But I want to let you know that my dad uh, gave me a message to, to forward to you, which was that even though he's not a betting man, when he was predicting races, he would look to see if your name was there. And he would say, well, that's the one I'm going with.
2: Well, I, I you tell your dad I appreciate that vote of confidence. Uh, I was tremendously blessed. Uh, God blessed me with incredible talent and ability uh, and men that worked for me over the years that selected and secured the horses that we rode. I always told my agents, and that was their responsibility, was to get me on, in their opinion, the best horse in every race. And I said, it's very, I, I said, look, I said, just get me on a horse that's 10 lengths the best. I'll win by a length and look good doing it. But I appreciate your father's confidence in me and you give him my very best.
1: Well, thank you so much. And the last question I have to ask, but you don't have to answer, who's going to win the derby this year?
2: Uh, the jockey in the white pants.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, you win. Smart,
2: smart Alec answer. That's now, awesome. I, you know, you, you I, I I was very privileged. I got to ride in that race 22 times. Uh, oftentimes I had several horses to choose from going into the race. At the end of my career, I was 1 for 22. And so that's not a very good record. But um uh, I just pray for a day of safety without accident nor injury to neither man nor horse and uh, let the races all go off without any problems. And uh, let's enjoy a good Derby 146.
1: Amen. And thank you so much, Pat Day. I really appreciate the honor that you gave me to be on the Core Principles podcast with me this week.
2: And uh, God bless you. And you likewise, sir, and all your listeners. Thank Have you. a great day.
0: Now it's time for our special historical segment, featuring a practical example of how core principles are applied.
1: On the first day of September, 1864, General John Hood had his armed forces evacuate Atlanta, Georgia. The very next day, Atlanta would become occupied by the Union Army, led by General William Tecumseh Sherman. Sherman had used a frontal assault but also maneuvered troops around the flank of the Confederate forces, requiring them to retreat to new positions, then retreat further. This was a critical point in the Civil War, as Atlanta had been a key rail center for the Confederacy. Union control of that city cut off the logistical support for the Confederate troops. In just a few months, General Sherman and his troops marched through the south towards Savannah. He was then able to turn back north and attack the Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia from their less defended southern side. General Sherman was following a strategy developed by Joshua, who obviously learned it from God. You can read about that in chapters 6 through 12 of the biblical book of Joshua and track on a map of biblical lands the path that Joshua followed. In our own lives, we face challenges that seem insurmountable. They may not be as significant as securing the promised land or as reuniting a fractured nation, but they are significant to us as we face them. The correct response to those challenges include faith in God, seeking His will, and having courage.
0: Core Principles Podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July.